thing's got to get full by now. <laughs> In the last few months, this pulpit has addressed itself to one particular theme, and that is the authority of Christ. This morning we're going to shift gears and we're going to go into the law of Christ. Let me run you through about six lessons that we've had so far in regard to that theme. We began by looking <coughs> exclusively at the fact that the law the Christ has all authority. That's what he claimed in Matthew 28 verse 20. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. That authority, that word authority, can also be translated power. Because if you have all power, you have all authority. If you have all authority, you have all power. And so they're synonymous one with another. And there is no authority or power that Jesus does not have. You and I can rest assured that we have nothing to worry about down here below. His love was of such a nature for you and I that he went to the cross for our salvation. And there's nothing between heaven and hell that will keep us, uh, that will uh, allow us to be uh, destroyed or maimed in any way. This is God's church. It's the Lord's church. And the devil does not have the power. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Never will. Never, never can. And so we started out looking at the authority of Christ. The fact that he has all authority. And we went through uh, a digest of that authority. Well, what did he do with that authority? He has all authority. What did he do with it? Well, we saw that he vested it in his word. Because in John 12, verse 48 through 50, he said, He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The very word that I have spoken shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. And so Jesus has all authority. He vested all authority in his word. And he gave that authoritative word to the apostles. He told those apostles very clearly, those 12 men, in John 15, verse 16, he told those men, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then in verse 27 of that same chapter, he told them what he chose them for. To receive the Holy Spirit that would guide them miraculously into all the truth. And so God was fixing to announce his will, his word, his way to a lost world through 12 men. Then later on he commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they did. Paul said they did in Colossians 1 verse 26. 
By the time he wrote the Colossian letter, which was about 62 A.D., about 30 years after the Lord had died and ascended to heaven, it was then that uh, uh, Paul said that by that time the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. There was no one exempt from the knowledge of the authority of Christ and the authority of his word. Well, so Christ has all authority. He placed all authority in his word and he gave that word to the apostles. And he promised them in John 14, verse 25 and 26, and also in John 16, verse 12 through 13. He said, you will receive the Spirit, and He will guide you into all the truth. Not part of it, not some of it, every bit of it. He'll guide you into the truth, and He will speak of things to come. That was a promise to those apostles. Not to you, not to you and me, to the apostles, the ones Jesus chose. He didn't choose you and me to receive the Spirit miraculously. He did only those 12 men. And they were faithful in their work as they declared it to the world through the Great Commission. It was preached to every creature under heaven. Well, we went ahead and saw in the theme of our study of the authority of Christ, He has all authority. He gave all, He vested all authority in His Word. And he gave that authoritative word to the apostles. And you and I know it because of their writings and their preaching in the book of Acts and the other epistles. And we also saw that that word was sufficient for all of our needs. It's not, uh, well, just take, uh, uh, I'm going to have to cut this short. (laughs) You can't talk about these things without getting kind of long-winded. But in uh, 2 Peter 1.3, Peter said, According to his divine knowledge has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him that's called us to glory and virtue. And I'll just leave it right there. We could go on and on, but... uh, The word is sufficient for all of our needs. God didn't give us an ill-sufficient word here that's lacking in any area or dimension of life. And we finished out a couple weeks ago in our study of this theme of the authority of Christ by seeing that God demands respect for his word. He demands respect. You either obey it or you die uh, at it. He laid a plumb line out here. You're either saved or lost by that word. Well, what was that word? What was that law uh, that Jesus gave? Well, this morning we're going to start. We won't get finished with it this morning. But number one, we're going to look at after his death, Christ's law went into effect. That's the word that's going to judge. 
That's the word that rules. And I need to know what it is. So after his death, Christ's law went into effect. And then number two, the giving. We're going to look at the giving of that law immediately after his death. When did it become effective? And then number three, we're going to see examples of conversion to that law. There's about nine of them in the book of Acts. And every one of those nine conversions was declares the fact that men heard the truth, they believed it, they confessed it, and they were uh, they repented and were baptized for the remission of sins. Every single case. And so it's the book of Acts makes it very clear about this law that men must obey to be saved. We're not preaching opinions. We're preaching the law that Christ gave and, and, uh, and that went into effect after his death. And so <clears throat> this morning, let's begin with number one here. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9 declares him to be the author of eternal salvation. If you want salvation, you'll come to him. He said, after all, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But here in Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9, listen to what it says. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. <clears throat> and being made perfect, he become the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He's the author of eternal salvation. You want salvation? You'll obey Christ and his law, which we will look at in the next few weeks. Now, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 that I just read speaks of him as being the author. Now, an author of, of eternal salvation, an author is one who instigates who commences salvation. That's the idea. Salvation is with him. It came from him. It came by him. God sent the Son into the world with a message of hope and salvation. And he was made perfect, it says in that verse. And that word perfect means complete. You remember in John 17, verse 5, Jesus prayed to his Father under the shadow of the cross. And he declared that he had finished the work that God gave him to do. He said, Father, I've finished the work you sent me to do. Now glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee from the beginning. And so he became... <clears throat> Thank you. He became complete through the things that he suffered. And the suffering that's being discussed there is his death on the cross. He showed his, his faithfulness to God and his love for you and I. You know, there's an interesting thing about <laughs> the cross of Christ. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It 
It was his love for you and me and his love to God, his Father. That's what held him to the cross. Nails didn't hold him there. Yeah, he was nailed there, but that didn't hold him. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. You ever wondered what that joy was? Seeing mine and your face in his family. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame that went with it. <laughs> in Hebrews 9, so he's the author of eternal salvation. Uh, here's uh, that law going forth that's effective from him. In Hebrews 9, verse 15 through 17, the writer speaks of uh, his will or covenant this way. And for this cause, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament. That by, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, a testament is a will. It's like a will. And the writer tells us that when Christ died, his will became effective. Until he died, his will was not in effect. Jesus was under the law of Moses until he died. Colossians, uh, uh, Galatians, <laughs> I'm losing my memory. It says, uh, Paul said that uh, in the fullness of the times, God sent forth his son. Now the fullness of the times means when time was right. When God looked down through the corridors of time, he saw the end from the beginning. And when time was right means that when the Jews were cooked off in the cauldron of life to where they would do exactly what he wanted done, because Jesus was crucified by the determined counsel of foreknowledge of God. Acts 2, verse 23. God foreknew it and predetermined it. But they were guilty of murder because God did not violate their free moral agency. But in the fullness of the times, God sent forth his son, born to the seed of woman, born under the law. Absolutely. That's why the Jews hounded him. That's why they confronted him and Many times, and they said, you disobeyed the law and worthy of being stoned to death. And, of course, they didn't understand the law themselves. They perverted it. And Jesus told them so. He said, you don't understand the law. You, you're teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And he had to explain the law to them. <coughs> but nevertheless, Jesus was answerable to the law of Moses until he died. And when he died, immediately his law became effective. 
By the things that he suffered, he became the author of eternal salvation. That's what we read in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. And now we see the nature of a will. Jesus is the one who is the testator that made this testament of the New Testament. A will. That's another word that's synonymous with testator, testament. And the writer makes it very understandable that a testament or a will is not in force until after men are dead. If you make out a will to your children, it has no authority until you die. Your kids might go to the, the highest court in the land and demand their inheritance before you die. And the judge would laugh at them and say, you don't understand the nature of a will. A will is only enforced after men are dead. And so when did Christ's law come into effect? He's the author of it, and it became effective when he died. All right, let's take this a little further. Let's look at the giving of that law immediately after his death. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and follow along if you like. Now, this is immediately after Christ died that his law became effective. Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power and authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now we've looked at that before, but we need to look at it one more time. If he has authority in heaven and on earth, all authority, and let's suppose for a moment that these idiots running around saying that there's people living out there on other planets that we're trying to connect with, if they're really out there, and they're not, but if they are, they've got to obey the authority of Jesus Christ. They've got to obey the gospel. The same as you and I. Because he has all authority in heaven and earth. All right? So here is his claim. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Does God's word authorize baptism? Well, how dare some men pop up and say baptism is not essential to salvation? How can they say that just in view of this one verse? And then you teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So, here we see the giving of that law immediately after his death. He commissioned him to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Look at Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, which says basically the same thing. <coughs> Mark 16, 15 and 16. <coughs> 
And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It makes you curious as to what the gospel is, doesn't it? He told him to preach the gospel. What's the gospel? Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He that believeth not shall be damned. Is there any hope for anyone who refuses to be baptized? There isn't. Not an ounce of hope. Isn't that pretty clear? I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. He that believeth and is baptized should be saved. Will a believer be baptized? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a result of believing in the Lord. He that believeth not should be damned. What is the gospel? Romans 1.16 It was Paul's theme in the book of Romans. It's that main thread that goes all the way through the book of Romans as he talks about the gospel. But he starts out by declaring his thesis that he's going to speak on all the way through the book. He begins in chapter 1 verse 16 with these words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and here's why. For it's the power of God. The power of God? That's what he said. For what? Under salvation. So this gospel that was commissioned to go preach to the whole world is pretty important, isn't it? And it, in, it includes baptism, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. He that believeth and is baptized should be saved. He that believeth not should be damned. And that was just what God said. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. In preaching the gospel, you're preaching baptism for the remission of sins. Like the Jews on the day of Pentecost, they were convicted of murder <coughs> by Peter's sermon as he stood up with the eleven and declared his message that you can read about in Acts 2. He convinced them. He, he ended his sermon in verse 36 with this profound statement. Now let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, Master and Savior. Verse 37 says that the truth of prophecy and of eyewitness testimony and of the Holy Spirit it cut them people to the heart. And they cried out, Men and brethren, what should we do? They were guilty of murder, and they acknowledged it. <coughs> and Peter, what did Peter say? Oh, just join the church of your choice. Just go out there and, and find one that you like. Is that what Peter said? They wanted to know, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you why 
Well, into what? Into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift or the reward from the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life. That's what the Holy Spirit promises us through the written word. And Peter didn't stop there. Some, some people want to say, well, that was just a custom back then, you know, and we're 2,000 years old. Oh, is that a fact? Well, listen to Peter. He said, and he continued, uh, you should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise. What promise? Salvation by being baptized for the mission of sins. This promise is unto you, you Jews, 2,000 years ago, there at Pentecost. It's unto you and your children and unto all that are far off. That's you and me 2,000 years later. And to all that the Lord our God shall call. So there's not a man, a woman that God calls that isn't commanded to be baptized for the remission of sins. Because that's the promise eternal life through that obedience to that law of Christ, to that word of Christ. It has all authority. <clears throat> what is the gospel? Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 4. If it's the power of God, then what is it? Besides being the power of God and the <coughs> salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Corinthians 15th chapter. <clears throat> Paul began with these words. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Oh, he's going to tell us about the gospel. Here's what it is. He said, which I preached unto you, because he established the church at Corinth uh, a couple of years before he wrote this letter. Which I preached unto you, which also you have received. So they received the gospel and obeyed it. And wherein ye stand, so they have standing power before God because of the gospel. We're learning a few things about the gospel. By which also you are saved. You're saved by the gospel. That's what he said. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now here he goes into a definition of what it is. He says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried in that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, less far as we need to read. But Paul makes it clear that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the good news. And that's what Paul preached. That's what Peter preached. That's what the apostles preached. That's what the early church preached. And if you preach the truth, that's what you're going to preach. Is obedience to the gospel of Christ. And that is being 
baptized into the death of Christ, being buried with him in, in, in a semblance, and being raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Romans 6, 3 through 6 says. Paul wrote to Christians in Rome, and he said, Know ye not, Romans 6, 3 through 6, Know ye not, don't you know that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we're buried with him. There's the death and the burial. And we're raised, he said, to walk in newness of life. A different kind of life. A new life. And then he don't stop there. He goes ahead and he says, here's some things you need to know. That when you were baptized, the old man died there. Well, who's that old man? The old man of sin that was labeled before God, damned and doomed. Right here. That's how he saw you. And that old man died in the baptistry. And a new man raised, Paul said, to walk in newness of life, being directed by the Spirit of God. 1 John 1, 7, If you walk in the light as He's in the light, you have fellowship with God, and the blood of His Son continually cleanses you. And so you begin a new walk in a newness of life. Is baptism important? Beginning to sound like it to me, doesn't it, you? Obedience to the gospel, God's power to save. <clears throat> In Luke 24, verse 46 and 47, we see Jesus giving that law immediately after his death, along with these other passages. Luke 24. 46 and 47. And he said unto them, he's speaking to his apostles, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. There we saw the giving of that law immediately after Christ's death. Now we've seen basically three things. Three things that were uh, shown in these passages. They had to be preached to, and they because that's how faith comes by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And their faith was based upon the Word of God, and they repented and were baptized for the remission of sins. So that equals discipleship. A man cannot lay claim to being a disciple, a follower of Christ, a saved individual, until he has complied with that law. Uh, that God, that the Lord gave immediately after his death. Because therein is remission of sins. Being baptized for the remission of sins. That equals the saved. We're going to have to stop right there. <clears throat> next, uh, next, uh, probably two weeks from now. We'll, huh? 
All right, well, next week we'll finish with examples of conversion to that law immediately after his authoring it. Let me finish with a couple of questions. One of them, can you be saved like the thief on the cross? Was Jesus dead when he spoke to the thief on the cross? His covenant hadn't even become effective, had it? No. Could Jesus forgive sins? He done it on many occasions. He healed a man once by saying, your sins be forgiven you. And the Jews just threw a tizzy boy. They just went into a fit. Who is this? A, a man who claims to forgive sins? Only God can do that. That was the whole point. He was God. He could forgive sins. Could He forgive the thief on the cross? On what basis did He forgive the thief on the cross? On the basis of faith. Did you know that every man that's ever been saved from Adam this forward has been saved by faith? Habakkuk 2 verse 4 states very clearly in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. Life is a matter of faith. Adam, they heard God when He spoke to the devil and declared war in Genesis 3.15. The jealousy of God and the anger of God was kindled as He spoke to the devil, the one who deceived the woman and consequently the man through her. And he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And he, the seed of woman, shall destroy your head, and you will bruise his heel. Do you know Jesus quoted that passage in Matthew's Gospel under the shadow of the cross? He declared that it was on the cross where he destroyed the devil's power. His influence over men. He proved the love of God with a blood sacrifice. <coughs> Adam and Eve heard that. They didn't know who that seed was. They didn't have a clue that his name would be Jesus. They didn't have a clue that it would be 4,000 years off into the future before he would come. They didn't know that he would win the battle and crush the devil's head by way of the cross. So how could they be saved? Only by faith in God. They believed God. You see, they looked toward the cross in what they knew at the time. We look back in what we know from, from past the cross. We look to the cross. But whether we was in the Old Testament era or in the New Testament era, whether they look forward and we look backward to the cross, still in all, man is saved by faith. And so were they. Moses, he died under law. He struck the rock rather than speaking to it as God said. And God said, you're going to die and you won't get to enter the Canaan's land because of that. Didn't mean he didn't go to heaven. It meant that he was under law. God was pretty severe with the law, wasn't he? 
but still his grace reigned on men through faith. Well, that's the lesson for this morning. Our time's up. I'm running out of voice anyway. <clears throat> so let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. <clears throat> he took my burdens all away.